Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talk. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is illustrator, graphic designer and novelist Paul W. Newman, author of Thin Rising. Paul, welcome. Hi Maggie, nice to be here. Now I'd like to open the show, as you all know, by having our guests read from their latest books. So Paul, can I ask you to just read us a little bit from Thin Rising? You may. So this would be uh, the second chapter. And this concerns um, a key, which is uh, uh, to a safety puzzle box. So I'll begin. The key. The pitiless eyes stared straight into the face of Lord Henry Comerford. He was lobster red beneath a patterner of sweat. The afternoon had taken its toll. He loosened a paisley cravat and unbuttoned a waistcoat of hound's tooth check. Releasing a long-held breath, he stared about the muggy room. The dark wood panels reflected the fire crackling in the grate. Portraits and landscapes crowded the walls. Gilt frames bordering heroic scenes. The hunt in full cry. A majestic stag in the misty peaks. Uniformed men standing ramrod straight alongside glossy mounts. And a bark under full sail, plowing through mountainous seas. And Lord Henry, looking at his illustrious ancestors, felt as if he'd let the side down a bit. He scrunched his toes inside Oxford brogues and pinched the inside corners of his puffy, bloodshot eyes, drawing his thin purple lip into a tight smile. It was done. He stared back at the stuffed trout. The polished display case with the brass plaque looked impressive. That pleased him greatly. And, he had to admit, nothing but joy had come from restoring the knotted log that now nestles on a bed of smooth pebbles among stiffly bowed grass. The magnificent trout he had cleaned himself, meticulously applying cotton on balls dipped in turpentine. Fumes had risen for hours in a shimmering haze, making him lightheaded and hinting at a migraine. And now, with a fresh coat of varnish to bring out every nuance of its colors in all their scintillating delicacy, the beautiful specimen glistened, just like the day, 19 years earlier, when he first saw it being lifted from the water. Lord Henry remembered it well, standing splay-footed on the bank, his rod tip dousing down into the frothing water. Danny McGrath had been there, and his son Finn, just a youngster and mad for the angling. It was Finn who'd gone into the cold river, waist deep and no waders on him. There was no mother, you see, to scold him afterwards. No reproach for wearing his school clothes. Turn the head, he'd shouted. He's getting tired. Keep him out of the reach. And then with one fluid movement, the thumper was safely in the back of the landing net. Nobody could believe the size of it. Just shy of 15 pounds and magnificent to behold. It was rich in color, deep, speckled, and well-built. Dripping wet, Finn scrambled up the slippery bank, struggling to hold the neck at arm's length so everyone could get a good look. But the unwieldy brute wasn't happy, and it fluttered and flapped against the soldier mesh. The knot of men stood silently beneath the low white sky. Jack came running along the bank. What is it? What did you catch? They quickly prized the prey from the jutting jaw. Jack swung the brass top piece. Bang, right between the eyes. Twitching stopped. One shot. Just like the vicious left hook he could always count on. Sledgehammer in a glove. Promising bantamweight was Jack back in the day. Title shot was all he needed. No more tending bars. Nearly made it onto the undercard of Madison Square Garden. Judge said no, shouldn't have played with guns, 
back behind bars with Jack Boy. Different kind of bars from the army bailed him. They laid the trout gently on the bank next to a creel and a rod to give some idea of the scale of it. Heads leaned in, the camera clicked, the decision made. This beauty would fill a trophy case. Lord Henry gave a toast. Nineteen years later, Lord Henry promised to taste the splendid fish once again and wondered where those years had gone. A breath of mist on the plaque and vigorous little circular movements with a wadded handkerchief made the plaque squeak as he wrote. He never tired of reading the inscription. Rainbow trout, 14 pounds, 11 ounces, taken at the Black Thorn River, Lord Henry cover. Only one thing is needed now to complete the display. One final thing, the reason for the whole bloody rigmarole. Lord Henry crossed the study noiselessly and inched the door open a crack. There was nobody in the hallway. Perfect. The grandfather clock in the far corner chimed softly seven bells. Realized how long it left the subterfuge. Crossing the carpet intricately patterned in wooden hues, he stood before a gilt-framed portrait of some mustachioed forebear in velvet and lace. The women in his lineage had never been attractive. Thank God Lorelai took to her mother. He tugged at the bottom left-hand corner of the painting, which swung wide on two hinges to reveal a wall Lord Henry peered at the dial in the center of a steel square. He blew on his fingertips the way safe actors always did in films. It made him feel deliciously wicked like he was stealing, even though he knew the combination. The dial rapped forth until the tumblers of the lock fell into place. The small, heavy door gave with a quick tug, and he snatched a manila envelope from the cool, dark box, slamming the door shut again. A noise made him turn quickly, but it was only the fire collapsing in itself. He sent the dial whirling and pressed the portrait back into place. With a racing pulse, he moved back to the trophy case. He tore open the envelope as he walked and tipped a glinting silver key onto his upturned palm. It was heavy. There were words stamped into the metal. International Bank of Geneva. Taking a deep breath, he plunged an unsteady hand into the case and thought for an instant that he was dipping into water. The key winked between forefinger and thumb as he maneuvered it delicately into the predatory mouth of Pin-sharp teeth scraped his knuckles as he forced the shiny metal into hiding, choking the fish that glared up at him. Trick of the light made him imagine for a split second that the fish had moved. A shudder. Must still be some fumes rising from the face. He slipped his fingers out of the yawning throat and, squi- and quickly screwed down the lid, casing the trophy once more. Along the deserted hallway, pushed the creaky pram, Lord Henry wheeled the glossy crowd back usual position at the foot of the great stick. He wondered, should he have confided in them? Another pair of hands would have been useful after all. But it was too late for that now. The deed was done. Besides, he couldn't risk any chance of the key shaking loose and being discovered. And so, he grunted as he stood on a chair and slid the trophy back onto the ice shelf. There, all done, he said, brushing dust off his hands. And as he stepped back down, spasm thumped high up inside his rib cage, just as a thin, shuffling figure rounded The figure was Wallace, faithful factotum, his face so lined that looked like his reflection in shattered glass, shoulders that never quite met the corners of his shirt. In an instant, he was at his master's side, guiding him down into the Are you all right, you'll look just another one of your turns, is it? And Lord Henry, 
close enough to see the nose, shiny as polished grape, sharp as a Mr. Punch. It was just a spasm once, right as right as you see. We're supposed to be taking it easy. Remember what Dr. Hennessy said. What about you? Do you have them with you, or have you left in your room again? Lord Henry patted his pockets. Bugger. Left them in my room. Never mind, just let me rest here for a tick to catch my breath. Then I'll turn it. Early night, just the ticket. Do me the world of. But your tablets, Wallace said. Promise I'll take one with a nightcap. Do you want me to call the doctor? Good heavens, no. Lots of fuss about nothing. Well, how about that? Lord Henry stood, shot his cups, and hooked his thumbs in the pockets of his waistcoat. There, he said. Fully recovered. Happy now? He rocked on his heels for emphasis. No need for any more carry-on. But Wallace wasn't satisfied. Are you sure there isn't anything I can do? Yes, there is one thing. The fire in the study. Forgot to put this around to the heart. Never know. Once up, no place to go up in seconds. Could you? He arched his bushy eyebrows. Better safe than sorry. Besides, shan't be using that room again this evening. Very well. I'll say good night then. And don't forget your tablets. I shall, Wallace. Good night. Mm. It's really interesting, of course, um, hearing that passage again after having read the whole book. Yeah. Because, of course, it's pivotal. Well, the thing is about that, that comes right at the start of the book. And um, it's, it's sort of to feed the story for later on, obviously. And uh, without giving too much away, the story hinges upon um, a fishing competition. And um, I also love the idea of this sort of crock of gold at the end of the rainbow. So here we have potentially the crock of gold, which is the key to a safe deposit box, being deposited into the mouth of a rainbow trout. So it sort of has that little thing going along with it as well. And that also uh, uh, turns up later in the story. It, be it becomes a, a major part of the story towards the end. Yeah, absolutely. And and all of the real key themes seem to be in that passage as well. Um, one of the things that struck me through the book, um, but also particularly as you were reading that passage as well, is this strong feeling of nostalgia that pervades the writing. Yeah, I do sort of, um, when, I, when I was a kid in Ireland, uh, one of my um, uncles was a, a sort of an estate manager. He was the farm manager of a, a country estate in, um, in the Clonmel in Ireland. And I do have very fond memories of the big house and the, you know, the fields and the lake and so forth. And, um, yeah, and it is a sort of, I've always felt like I've only been sort of born out of my time. Not out of my place, but certainly out of my time. It's, it's, it feels nice to me to go back there in my head and to, um, to sort of uh, imagine it again, if you will. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have a theory. I haven't proven this yet. Um, I haven't even done enough research to to speak it, and yet I'm doing it anyway. That a lot of a lot of first novels are driven by this sense of of nostalgia, wanting to somehow explore and get back to a particular place and time. Oh, I I agree totally, and I think also for me, um, because I, I was born in Dublin and but uh, raised in Liverpool, all of my holidays were in Ireland as a, as a kid. I mean, when I went back to Ireland, there was never any homework or schoolwork or anything of that nature. It was always holiday for me. And so even though, you know, even when I go back now, and when I went back to live there in the 90s and to work, to pay taxes, etc., 
it still had, there was something about the place that uh, had that sort of easygoing, uh, you know, it, it sort of felt like that to me. And I think that writing this in Sydney, I sort of wanted to go back there, to, you know, to the other side of the world. I mean, if, I have an inflatable globe, and if I put one finger on Sydney and one on Dublin, it's an axis. I can spin it, so, you know, I couldn't be any further away. And I suppose it was also a desire to go back, if not just in time, uh, you know, uh, physically, to go back to that part of the world. And I could do it in my head, and it felt very enjoyable to do it, you know? I'm not sure why I wrote this and not in Australia, but that's just the way it came up. So I didn't uh, sort of monkey, but you know, I just... I did what, what Yes, uh, that nostalgia too, of course, is what motivates, to a certain extent, certainly what we find out, what motivates Henry, what motivates Finn, you know, and even Roger in a twisted sort of way. Yeah, I, I like to think that, uh, you know, the story gets rewritten over time, as you would know, you know, draft after draft. And I think originally Roger was a, a, quite a horrible and a sympathetic character, but I didn't really see him as that way. I wanted him in the end to, you know, to, to find something in himself, you know, and to um, to be able to, to become a more rounded character. Although he's always a bit of a dodger and stuck in a dive, I still felt there was there was something decent in him there. And and they they're all sort of affected by the things that have happened to them in the past. It's a book about in parts I guess it's about loss and and, and in the end I, I guess redemption, you know. So they've all sort of lost something or someone along the way. In fact, I think, I think you know, now they pretty much all have. And that's, I hope I've shown that it's in the sort of in a dialogue and so forth. Yes, they, they all seem to have lost the same thing in, in, in one way or another. You know, they've all lost that kind of um, feminine figure. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good way to think about it. And then there's also this sort of uh, notion that they're also trying to find something. You know, they're all trying to find, as I said earlier, you know, the rainbow. I think that in one chapter, uh, Henry talks about the Irish-facing rainbow. They can sod up to someone with a decent climate when they find the crock of gold and how he had always chased rainbows. And the notion of chasing this, the king, as they call him, they, they have a toast to him at, at uh, the annual dinner party, and they always raise a glass to the king. He's the king of the rainbow. So here they are, going up to this magical, mystical lake up in the mountains, and they're looking. They're trying to, you know, see what's under the water. They're trying to catch the king, and he is a rainbow. So there's a lot of allusion there to um, this sort of mythical thing, you know. And and um, I don't know whether it's an Irish, but um, yeah, this, this idea of catching. I know the Irish have the salmon of knowledge, but there's something that maybe they think will heal them or make them better people. And it's just something that also drives them and brings them together every year. So, there's even a bit in the beginning when Finn, and it's quite a touching moment when Finn thinks, if only he can catch a trout for his mother, it'll all be all right. Yes, yes. Um, and I, and one of the things I like about that opening chapter is when he's a, he's a child, um, and then we we sort of also see it anthropomorphically, as you as you pointed out in your review. Uh, from the perspective of the actual trout, which turns out to be the king. Mm. So you have that thread running through the story as well. That that sort of uh, went along quite nicely for me and, and, and kind of wrote itself in parts, which was great. You know? So 
Um, yes, I almost saw that in a, a sort of religious way, or you know, in a Buddhist kind of religion way, um, as if you know, in some way, King is looking after Finn. Well, yeah, there is that. I think he may be looking after them all. I think he may, you know, as I say, it gives them a reason to come back every year and to try again, not just to, to catch the fish, but it gives them a reason every year to come back and maybe try to, you know, mend the relationships that have become fractured over time because of the, the decisions that Henry made earlier on with regard to his daughter Lorelai and, and how uh, it changed her character in a way. And, uh, and in the end, I think, you know, she comes to understand him and, and his reasons for doing what he did and um, comes to the game. So I'm hoping that by the, by the wash-up, they've all learned something and they've all, you know, sort of come to forgive those that needed to and, and forgive themselves even. Mm, absolutely. So tell me how the book came about. I mean, you're a well-known illustrator. What drove you to write this novel? Um, it just, I went back to Ireland in the 90s to live. And shortly before I left, I used to work at the Sydney Morning Herald. Shortly before I left, I had this notion to uh, to do a children's illustrated book. Some of the guys I worked with were, were doing illustrated books. And I had an idea for a story. So I wasn't looking for somebody to write it, and I, I should just illustrate I wanted to do the whole thing. And back in Dublin, then I found I really enjoyed the writing side of it. I started to write more and more children's stories, but based largely on illustration. And came to the realization that I actually enjoyed the writing aspect of it. And I, I used to work with a lot of guys who, um, at the end of the working day, haven't gone in and done a shift and done illustrations for newspapers, would go away in the evenings or weekends and would paint, would get out large canvases and oils and paintbrushes. And to me, that was kind of a bustling holiday. So I began to write. And I found it was a great way to um, to get rid of all that excess um, creative energy that you typically quite get rid of in work, if that was the case. And I really found that I enjoyed kind of creating word pictures, if you will. So rather than illustrate something, have the picture tell the story, I really got into the, the notion of being able to write something that would be able to, you know, to describe something that somebody maybe move them. And um, so that's basically how I got into the writing side of it. Yeah, and there's definitely a visual characteristic to writing. You know, you can definitely um, word pictures is a good way of describing it. You definitely um, take us into that visual scene, and maybe that's your illustrator background. Oh, thanks for that. Well, I, perhaps that is it. You know, I I tend to always be looking. I tend to always be looking at everything around me and trying to um, to see it that way. You know, to to try to remember what that would be like. Uh, you know, whether it's the sunset or whatever, it might sound a bit daft, but I, I teach drawing at the minute. I teach observational drawing at uh, Design Center in Sydney here. And um, I do make the point to all of my students that you've got to draw what you see, not what you know, and try to make them see things, actually see what is in front of them. And that sounds crazy. It sounds like um, some kind of platitude. But they eventually get it because I point out to them that the drawing what they know, like a kind of symbol system. And so I, I guess trying to see that way and to describe it as such. And if I, if I do that properly, I can almost put you in that situation, which is what I want to do now. Yes, and maybe that's the heart of all the all creative processes. It's about really looking at something and seeing it, you know, in a new way, in a fresh way, and in terms of the heart of what it is. Yeah, I think so, you know. And um, that's... 
That's what I find with my favorite author. My absolute favorite author is uh, J.P. Dudley. And he can manage to uh, capture very few words. And he, and he will he will shift uh, viewpoint and tense. And he even has some characters in, in one book, even in the space of paragraph, named in different ways. He, George Smith, Georgie, Mr. Smith, and just plain George. But you always know who that is, and you and, and you write this. You, you know you feel it almost on a visceral level. You're right in there. I love the way he does, and that's something I I I would aim for. Um, because you need to get the you need to get your reader in, and you need to really make him feel. I, I don't know whether it's easier if you've been to those places or experienced. So I don't know. I don't know whether that's particularly Irish book. I imagine, which is what I was saying. Yes, and and you know we have something similar happening with Finn, um, and not just Finn, Finn as in Finn Tan, the character, yeah. but you know Finn as in the fish fin. Yeah, and. You know the way the fin rises, and that is a metaphor, even. So there are multiple meanings of the word fin, aren't there? There are, and that was something that I liked. I, I think I mentioned somewhere in the story about um, uh, the lake uh, seldom give up its secrets. You know what I mean? And he has to go looking for it. anybody who who wants it. So it's kind of a an heroic quest, I guess you could call it. To get to the secrets of the lake, you need patience, and you need to be able to go there and to be still. And to sort of become immersed in it. And I think that worked also for the character of Jack, who had uh, seen horrendous things during the Second World War. And, um, and, he, and he found solace by, by coming back year in, year out to, to fish at the lake. And his line in the water kind of connecting him back to nature, you know. So as you said earlier, maybe I hadn't thought of this before, but now as you mentioned, that kind of zen thing, you know. It is. I did read a long time ago. I like to myself, and I did read a long time ago that in the East, if uh, if man sits at a riverbank, people just leave him alone because they assume that he is meditating. But in our Western society, if you were somewhere sitting by a canal or riverbank, just on your own, somebody would pull the cops eventually and say, you know, what's this guy doing? But if you have a rod with you, a fishing rod, it's like, oh, he's fishing. Now, often people go fishing, not necessarily to catch fish. It's just that you can be by water, and whether it's at the waves or whether it's at the lake or whatever or out the or whatever it may be, there is something about that. There's something about being, you know, near nature like that, and it can be quite dramatic, especially to see. You know, um, so I wanted to sort of get something of that across. You know, the, the mystery of not knowing, especially if something is tugging on the line. You don't know what that. You don't know until you can get closer to seeing it, and it's a gradual process. You know, it's 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 a revelation. It's, um, it's an unveiling, you know. And there's something exciting and mystical about that, I think. Mm. And that definitely comes through in the book. I mean, I, I you can almost say that the fishing itself becomes the verb that drives the drives the narrative forward. In that sense, you know, that that fishing really underscores everything that everybody's doing, again, in a literal and a metaphoric sense. Yeah, yeah. fishing for, um, yeah, not in the metaphorical sense, exactly. And um, I think that, you know, this, this is basically what, when the idea came to me, it's just sort of all coalesced and, and the, uh, the characters start to find their own choices, as it were. And uh, the fishing was just a common thread. But I didn't want to re write a book about, because that, 
turn a lot of people. You know, if you thought this was a book about fly fishing, unless you were a keen fly fisher, you wouldn't be interested. So I didn't want it to be about, although that is central element, that is the core. But you put it beautifully there when you said that it's kind of, um, you know, it's not just physically fishing, is it? You know, it's it's just kind of allegory for what they're after. Yes. So, so you're not going to actually um, call this by a new genre, fishlet <laughs> or trout. <laughs> um, but the, the funny thing is that a friend of mine knew that I had written the book before it was published, and he tipped me into that uh, a great book, uh, Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. And I said, this is great. And I began to see more and more 50 stories and fishy films come about once I'd written the book, you know. And I thought, well, maybe the maybe there will be fish licks. And I was, was happy to be counted as part of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> New genre. I like it. That's right. You've, you've, we've coined it right now. That's right. You heard it here first. So um, do you feel that the genre is in many ways, an artificial constraint. I mean, you know, your book is romance, it's literary fiction, which is what I tagged it, but it's mystery. Um, uh, do these things really matter? Or are they sort of publishers' labels? It's weird. I think it's just publishers' labels because I know um, in the past and uh, even in the present, if I send something to an agent or a publisher, they ask, um, you know, what genre is, where does it fit in? And I think, well, I really have no clue because I can only write what, what, what occurs to me and I don't really try to, uh, you know, shoehorn them to any particular uh, uh, place or hole or cavity, whatever you will. You know, I, just, I don't try and force it. It just, it just comes the way it comes. And so it does tend to be across a couple of genres. So it's, it's kind of hard for me to uh, say to an agent or publisher what it is, you know. It's probably best if they just take a look. But they do want to know. But no, I, I don't think it's particularly helpful. I think, you know... If it's just a yarn, it's a yarn. And perhaps literary fiction, small l. Um, but as you say, it, all, it does also en encapsulate there is mystery involved. There's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a um, chase for money. And, and there's certainly the romance um, that runs through the story. So it, it's not an easy thing to uh, classify. I think most novels are the same, you know? Uh, I'll yeah. put it under the broad umbrella of. You have lips, you know, and then you have popular fiction. I've never yeah. taken any notice of that. If it's a book I like, then that's all that counts to me. But it, I, yeah, it doesn't help, I think, to try to categorize in that way. I certainly can't do that. And, and I suppose it's if it fits so neatly into a particular genre category, then perhaps, um, you know, it, it, it has its limitations and it might only appeal to people who like that genre. So maybe that's the only restriction, and that, it, you know, if you really are so classically slotting into a particular genre and it doesn't have anything else in it but you know that kind of formula then then that's not necessarily a good thing yeah no i agree with you there but that's in relation to my writing in particular and some of my favorite authors but i also do love to read agatha christie and raymond chandler and so forth and we know exactly where they fit in the ranking but you you get what you expect and i don't have any problem with that whatsoever you know it's nice to sometimes sit down to know that someone's going to get clunked over the head and that, you know, they're going to find out in the end of the story who did it. You know, there will be some retribution. It's all pretty much the same, but, you know, I'm a big fan of Midsummer Murders and every week, you know, I wouldn't want to go live there, of course, but 
every week, you know, someone gets killed and, and Barnaby finds out who it was. I got no problem with that. It's nice to switch off sometimes and just enjoy a good yarn, you know? So Yeah. Yes. In fact I know a few authors who uh enjoy as well um switching off in their writing <laughs> and writing in it, you know, with a pseudonym. Yeah, He's a classic case, that's right, Benjamin Black. And he even told me, because I interviewed him on the show, he told me that, uh, you know, Benjamin Black was always a success and John Benville was always a failure because he was always striving to do something much harder. <laughs> well, maybe that's it. Maybe you should just coast a little bit. I think yeah. that, uh, if you're not good, I have this theory, it may not be right, maybe. If you enjoy the work, other people will enjoy it. And that also applies to illustration. I mean, there were days when I would be doing an illustration and it just wasn't coming together. It was a real chore and it just never looked good in print. And nobody ever said, wow, nice. You know? And there are other days when it just happens. You're just really enjoying it. And I found the same with writing. If, if I... If I get too full of angst or try to make it go a certain way, it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So I open the book, usually the Jimmy Dunleavy book next to me, and, and read a few pages. I usually have half a dozen of his novels nearby, and I'll open up any one of them in any page and read a couple of pages. And that's usually enough just to sort of loosen me up. Because I enjoy his writing so much. It kind of gets me in that headspace that I, I should be having fun with it. And once you begin to have fun with it, I think that's the key. Then other people will have fun reading it. Even if it is quite a, a heavy scene, even if it's something akin to uh, the chapter, you know, relating to the concentration camps, for instance. You know, I couldn't say it was a bundle of fun to write, but it, it came easy and it, and it felt right. And I think that's what you've got to look for. If you can get that, if you've enjoyed writing it, then people will enjoy reading it. You know, it doesn't feel forced. I mean, would you agree? Because you're a writer too. Your best writing comes when it's easy. Yes, I think. Well, I think all writers are readers, and and we all write for ourselves first. Yeah. So yes, you know, if it has to be something that you yourself would be happy to read, otherwise, why bother? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and you you can't expect anybody else to 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 read something that wouldn't suit you. And and you know, you don't want to give them a diatribe. I try and stay off the soapbox. You know. Make a subtle message across here and there, but um, other than that, it tends to just be, um, you know, a fun yarn, a bit of nostalgia, and and hopefully, you know, I, I asked myself one day, why am I doing? This? I was working um, mornings writing, and then I begin work at midday, and I had to put on my illustrator hat, which is a different kind of creativity, and that the newspapers, there's a spike in the day when the deadline arrives, and you find you don't have. Um, a limited amount of time to get the job done. And it has to be in the paper, and your name is on it, so it has to be good. So you have to have a certain standard, okay? So that's a, a fairly pressure job. And then I would come up in the evening, and I would edit what I'd written and, and type it up, because I write writing. And I found that after a while it was exhaustive, and I had to stop and ask myself, why am I doing this, you know? Because there's no guarantee that it's published, so why am I doing it? And then I realized I just really wanted to put something out there that people might enjoy. It sounds very naive myself, but William Blake, but if somebody read this and enjoyed it, and it just took him to a different headspace for a while, away from the news and all the, you know, the propaganda and stuff that pours into your living room every if it took you away from that and gave you a little sort of, um, I don't know, you know, a little bit of a fight, shall we say, then that would be it. My work would be done. And so that's really, I suppose, the driver or one of the drugs, 
Mm. So um, we're almost out of time, but uh, are you working on something new? Is there another book in the works? There is another book in the works, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. And it's uh, it's this one's a bit it's a bit out there. I can tell you now, it's it's about time travel, but it's written in a, a fairly dark, comedic way. I'd like to think, and you know, parts of it are making me laugh, which is good. That's always a good start. But I have to, I have to really start to throw myself into it, though. So I'm going to have to get my writing routine up and running again. It has, it has sort of fallen by the wayside. But I'm looking forward to getting back into that. And I have another novel which is already complete, which I'm, I'm going to sort of pout around now. And that's the kind of a supernatural, as you were talking about genre people. This is a supernatural thriller mystery um, based on folklore. And it's set in in Ireland once again, and uh, and San Francisco, and it's it's back in the eighties, back in the fifties and the eighties, and um, it's kind of based on a, a lot of these delicious dark tales I was told as a kid, you know, by an open fire in in Ireland, uh, you know, great fairy stories. With with the fairies are not exactly they're either good or bad, and, and I just love that whole notion because in Ireland a very Catholic country, there's a very strong pagan stream running concurrently with, you know, and, and people happily talk about little people and fairies and weird stuff like that, and educated people who are churchgoers, so, and also young people who've traveled. It's, it's quite common to have this such close proximity to a pagan. I love it. I love the idea. Mm. That's, what, that's what's coming up for me anyway. Absolutely. Wonderful. But with a fairy hand in hand. <laughs> well, the world's more full of weeping. That is exactly. That Yeats poem is in the opening page. Because that's oh, wonderful. The Stolen Child. And it is actually, it's based on, I read that poem, and then the story was based on that, and my own, sort of, the story's eye. So you've hit the back on that. Wonderful. Oh, well, I definitely look forward to that. And that is all we have time for today. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. And listeners, don't forget to join us next month when we interview Jay Ford, author of Blood Secret. Bye for now. My absolute pleasure. Bye, Maggie.